World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Since 1986, The Economist's annual Big Mac Index has proved a beefy measure of which of the world's currencies are overvalued or undervalued. We run through this year's list to find out where to go if you want to do some burger-based arbitrage. And India has two local environmental problems. Piles of pine needles that represent a fire risk in the Himalayan foothills and rivers polluted by heavy metals. Now, a team of scientists has figured out how to turn one into a solution for the other. First up, though. Every night since the end of May, Thousands of Americans have taken to the streets of their cities to protest against systemic racism and police brutality. Black Lives Matter! Black Lives Matter! Black Lives Matter! Don't shoot! Don't shoot! Don't shoot! Don't shoot! The demonstrations have been particularly loud in Portland, Oregon, a left-leaning city in America's Northwest. And they've become even louder in recent weeks, as President Donald Trump who's campaigning for re-election on a law and order platform, sent more than 100 federal law enforcement officers into the city. In doing so, he's pitted himself not only against the protesters, but also against Portland's mayor and district attorney, who have called the intervention unlawful. And with Mr. Trump threatening to expand this use of federal forces into other American cities, the fight may only be beginning. On June 26th, Donald Trump signed an executive order authorizing the dispatch of of what he called personnel, but which actually mean federal law enforcement officers, to cities to protect federal property and monuments. John Fasman is The Economist's Washington correspondent. They've been on the streets, I think, for a couple of weeks now in Portland, Oregon, where protests have been happening for for more than 60 nights. And so who are these officers? What, What do they look like? The striking thing about their appearance has been a couple of things. Number one, they're dressed in camouflage. They really look like military troops more than like police officers. The camouflage they're wearing does not identify them. So they don't have badge numbers. They don't have names on their, on their camouflage. And they have been active in Portland uh, in unmarked vehicles. And so there is Twitter footage, really alarming Twitter footage, of a bunch of unidentified men in camouflage. Jumping out of an ordinary unmarked van and grabbing someone off the street and shoving him into it. You just violated their rights. That is not how police tend to operate in America. That looked a lot more like a rendition or a kidnapping than than ordinary police action. 
And so as per the executive order, what is it that all of these uh, officers, troops are, are tasked with doing? They are tasked with protecting federal property and monuments. And their base of operations in Portland has been the federal courthouse. Um, and there have been some violent protesters who have attacked them late at night, who have, who have flung in concrete, who have shot fireworks off toward them. But they have also been active off federal courthouse property. Now, they say that when they leave the property, it is for a specific reason to make a specific arrest. But of course, that is not what everyone claims is happening. And what they appear to be doing often is engaging in basically local sort of anti-crime police work rather than enforcing federal law. And what's worrying here is that they, they seem to be pushing quite some way beyond the remit. Correct. Well, they certainly shouldn't be called out to, to confront peaceful protesters. But when, they're, when the protests turn violent, as they have in Portland, the people who are violent are breaking city and state law. They're not breaking federal law. So I would not expect, we should not expect, Americans should not expect to see federal troops active on American city streets. But this isn't entirely without precedent, right? The, the federal officers have been sent out before during periods of civil unrest. They have. In 1967 and 68, federal troops were dispatched to keep the peace in American cities during riots. And then in 1992, President George H.W. Bush ordered the National Guard to Los Angeles during the Rodney King riots. I've ordered the Justice Department to dispatch 1,000 federal riot-trained law enforcement officials to help restore order in Los Angeles beginning tonight. These officials... There are two big differences. First of all, in those cases, local officials asked for the troops to be dispatched. And second of all, the troops that were dispatched were National Guard troops who have some expertise in sort of large-scale crowd control. The troops that are active in Portland right now are the Federal Protective Service and the Border Patrol's tactical units, and neither of whom sort of do this as their main role. Given those two significant differences, though, is is having these military-like personnel on the streets even legal? The legal justification for their presence seems to be expansive and imaginative, but I'm not sure we can say that it is illegal for them to be there. It is definitely unusual and alarming for the president to dispatch federal troops against the wishes of local officials. And so that's what's strange. Oregon's Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum said on Friday, July 17th, that her office had opened a criminal investigation into how one protester was injured near a federal courthouse. She also filed a lawsuit in federal district court accusing the federal agents of engaging in unlawful tactics, and she wants a restraining order. Portland's mayor, Ted Wheeler, who was tear gassed during a protest, has also spoken out forcefully against the dispatch of federal officers. The words and actions from President Trump and the Department of Homeland Security have shown that this is an attack on our democracy. In his view, President Trump is using federal forces as his own private sort of campaign army to assure his base that he is the strong man they need. And what do you think of that charge, that this is a uh, essentially a, a campaign move rather than a uh, law and order move? Well, certainly Donald Trump wants to run as a law and order president. In that sense, I think he may believe that, that chaos on the streets is politically helpful to him. It recalls the election of 1968 in which Richard Nixon ran as a law and order president against Lyndon Johnson and won on that basis. The big difference, of course, is that Richard Nixon was not the incumbent then. So the law and order argument that Donald Trump is making is, is, is somewhat stretched because he is the president now and he is warning people to vote for him or a thing that is happening now will happen. 
We have also seen him make a bunch of campaign ads stoking fears that the country will be beset by crime if Joe Biden wins. Seattle's pledge to defund its police department by 50 percent. There's one particularly striking ad um, that shows a woman on her couch watching news about Seattle calling to defund the police. An intruder gets in. She calls 911, but it reaches an answering machine message. You've reached 911. I'm sorry that there is no one here to answer your emergency call, but leave a message. And the last shot is of the phone falling to the ground. And then the words come up on the screen, you won't be safe in Joe Biden's America. So that's the sort of campaign that Donald Trump is running now. And in that sense, maybe he believes that having troops on the ground makes him look strong. Maybe he believes that having chaos on the streets makes him look necessary. And to that end, we're, we're hearing that he might deploy the, these, these troops to, to other cities. We are. There are federal troops that have been sent to Kansas City already. And he has talked about sending them to, to Seattle, Chicago, Albuquerque, and Detroit. And so how do you see that playing out if, if stoking division is already in the playbook, if troops are hitting the street and that seems to be going on unabated and so on? Where, where does this story end? Well, I'm not sure that it does end before November, to be honest. I think that President Trump may see this, as we've discussed, as a crucial part of his campaign. And unless a court tells him to stop doing it, I expect he'll continue doing it. And do you think he's right in that it is playing to the base, or is it just him uh, imagining what would? I think, as with anything Donald Trump does, there is a core group of people who will support it. Whether that is enough to move the election in his favor, though, that remains very unclear. John, thank you very much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Jason. John Fasman appears every week on Checks and Balance, Economist Radio's American politics podcast. The latest episode asks whether 2020 will be a law and order election and spools back to the hot summer of 1988 to find out what rappers NWA had in common with America's most notorious election strategist. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, can I ask how much a Big Mac is right now? Uh, just, just the burger. 319. 319. Can I have just one of those, please? That is it. Thanks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Since its introduction in the 1960s, the Big Mac has taken over the world. There are McDonald's restaurants in more than a hundred countries, and in most of them anyway, you can grab a Big Mac. McDonald's Big Mac, the great big sandwich with a great big taste. But it's not just a tasty, calorific treat. It's the basis for The Economist's recently updated Big Mac Index, which has been making economics a bit more digestible since 1986. The world's best-known burger can tell us more about exchange rates than you might think. Simon Cox is The Economist's Emerging Markets Editor. The Big Mac Index was invented by one of my predecessors at The Economist. It's quickly taken on a life of its own. It's made its way into economics textbooks and dozens of academic studies. Okay, take me through it. How is the Big Mac Index calculated? What does it tell us? 
So it's illustrating this idea of purchasing power parity, which is a very simple notion. It dates all the way back to the 16th century, which is that an exchange rate between two currencies should reflect their purchasing power. If it takes about $5 to purchase a burger in the United States and about 10 Malaysian ringgit, say, to buy the same burger in Malaysia, that tells you that the purchasing power of a US dollar is about twice that of a Malaysian ringgit. And so you'd expect $1 to buy about two Malaysian ringgit in the foreign exchange markets. But in fact, we see something very different. The ringgit actually, it takes four ringgit to buy a dollar in the foreign exchange markets, which suggests the ringgit is somewhat undervalued. It's quite cheap given its purchasing power. And that sort of exercise can be done for every country where there is, in fact, a Big Mac sold. So why the Big Mac, though? Why is that the benchmark? The idea of purchasing power parity is that the same good should cost the same when you convert the price into a common currency. So in order to prove it or disprove it, you have to find the same good around the world. And that's harder than it sounds. We chose the Big Mac because it's so ubiquitous, because you can buy it in so many places. And the price of a Big Mac is not that difficult to find out. And so The Economist has published this year's update to the legendary burger index. What did it find this time? So this year's update showed that the US dollar is still strong. We could only find three places in the world where a Big Mac was more expensive than it is in the United States. One of the other interesting findings is that the Lebanese currency, the Lebanon pound, is also overvalued, according to our index. And that surprises many people. And it's a result of the fact that Lebanon's been wrestling with inflation since the end of last year. So prices in Lebanon have shot up, including the price of a Big Mac. Some currencies are extremely undervalued. The South African rand is about 67% undervalued, according to this index. One way to think about this is that if you went to South Africa, you could buy a Big Mac for 31 rand. Now that's less than $1.90. So in principle, you could buy a Big Mac for less than $1.90 in South Africa, and then you could go to the US and sell it for $5.71. Or you could go to Switzerland, where the Swiss franc is actually overvalued and Big Mac's actually more expensive, and you could sell it for almost $7. Obviously, in practice, you can't do this. Your, Your burger wouldn't taste very good by the time it got to Switzerland. But that does show this basic incentive to buy cheap, sell high. Economists call this arbitrage. And that basic incentive, that basic economic force, is one reason why people think this purchasing power parity theory does work out over the long run. But how do those numbers fit into the wider markets? Why should we care about over or undervalued currencies? Well, if a currency is generally overvalued, that's if you find that lots of prices, not just Big Mac prices, seem out of line, that might tell you something about the direction the exchange rate is going to go in the future. So, you know, if you're an investor and you have lots of money parked in an overvalued currency, you might worry that the currency would, would drop. Alternatively, if you think you know, the South African rand looks cheap, you might be able to make money if it appreciates over time, if it strengthens. There's also a lot of politics around this. There's always been a lot of politics around exchange rates. Uh, in fact, back in 1986, when this Big Mac index was introduced, it was a period of huge controversy over the dollar. They had the Plaza Accord the year before, which was an attempt to bring the dollar down. They had the Louvre Accord a year later, which was an attempt to prop the dollar back up. So there's always been politics around exchange rates. In particular, under the Trump administration in this era of trade wars, the Trump administration has accused a lot of countries in Asia of keeping their currencies too cheap, of keeping them undervalued as a way to boost their exports and steal manufacturing jobs from America. So there are lots of reasons to care. Okay, so the Big Mac index is certainly instructive, but does it really contain all of the subtlety here? Is it anything more than just indicative? There are lots of limits to the theory, and there are lots of limits to the Big Mac as an illustration of the theory. We're only looking at one price. In principle, we should be looking at thousands of prices across 
all of these different economies. That's something actually that the World Bank does and comes up with alternative estimates of uh, exchange rates. Also, a Big Mac is a sort of interesting good, actually, when you look at it very closely. Some bits can be traded across borders like onions. And there you do see prices converging across the world. But the cost of a Big Mac also reflects the cost of the rent and the labour and the electricity in the restaurant where it's served. And those things are much more difficult to trade across borders. And so price gaps can persist for much longer. Also, although the Big Mac is very popular around the world, there are some places where you can't buy it. There aren't McDonald's in some parts of Africa. India is tricky because uh, beef's less popular. And therefore, you know, we've used the Maharaja Mac, which is a chicken Big Mac, uh, which is obviously not quite the same as the beef version. So this was always intended as a lighthearted guide to exchange rates, a lighthearted guide to economic theory, but people have taken it very seriously. Even some central banks have been moved to comment on our results when we've shown that their currencies are more undervalued than they would like the public to think. Simon, thanks very much for your time. My pleasure. For plenty more tasty, tasty analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist. To find the best introductory offer wherever you are, just go to economist.com slash intelligence offer. In the foothills of the Himalayas, pine forest fires are a recurring problem. Pine needles fall from the trees, forming a thick, inflammable bed. A bit of lightning can start a conflagration. Elsewhere in India, lead-derived fuels have contributed to heavy metal pollution of the country's water supply. Last year, Prime Minister Narendra Modi said that the water crisis is a problem for everyone and it affects our country's progress and dreams. Some see two risks here, but new research sees them as one solution. The notion that Dinesh Mohan at Nehru University has come up with is that it might be possible to help India's water pollution problem get solved by using up pine needles that are sitting on the base of forests and actually helping to spark forest fires. Matt Kaplan is The Economist's science correspondent. Pine needles in and of themselves are not that big an issue. Yes, they fall off of conifers, pine trees and the like, and then sit at the base of the forest. But once they get wet in the monsoons that hit India every year, they really are not that flammable. The problem is that because of global warming, the monsoon is arriving later every year. And the longer the pine needles sit on the forest floor and bake, the more likely a lightning bolt from a passing storm can set them off and create a really serious fire. And that's what India is seeing more often in recent decades as things get warmer. And so how do pine needles then figure into a water cleaning solution? So the idea that Dr. Moen came up with was that you could potentially use the pine needles to create what's called biochar, which is really just a a hip name for, for charcoal. We've known for quite a long time that charcoal, which you make from wood, it can be really good at adsorbing pollutants in water. When you use it in filters, lots and lots of small particles get readily lodged inside the charcoal, and you can then take the charcoal out of the polluted water, use other chemicals to draw the toxins out of the charcoal, and then use the charcoal filter again. And you can get multiple uses out of a single charcoal filter to purify an awful lot of water. And that's great, except for the fact that most charcoal is made from wood. And, well, we have an awful lot of uses for wood. So 
the notion was, could we do something with all of these pineals that are just sitting on the floor of the forest and creating a fire hazard? Okay, so essentially using pine needles, which would otherwise go to waste or be a danger uh, as the source for some charcoal. So how, how was the idea put into practice? Dr. Mohan thought, well, I wonder if we could take a whole bunch of pine needles and turn them into charcoal, and then to see if that charcoal would be any good at absorbing lead. So he and his colleagues went up to the forests along the base of the Himalayas and collected a whole bunch of pine needles. The thing about pine needles is you can't just burn them to create biochar charcoal. It's a delicate procedure whereby you gradually heat them in a controlled environment so that they don't just spontaneously combust because you want to carbonize them, but you don't want to release too much oxygen from inside the pine needle because that's how the little cavities get formed that allow the charcoal to absorb lots of the pollutants in the water. Could this be scaled up? Does this look like a killing two birds with one stone scenario? It certainly does. Pine needles currently serve no economic benefit at all. There is no market for them. So they literally just sit and cause trouble, whereas timber is valuable. And, you know, that timber could be going someplace else. There are plenty of pine needles in the forest, and there's plenty of lead pollution in India. So if you can find a reason to go and get those pine needles and turn them into biochar to extract lead, then you are, in fact, collecting a flammable material and therefore helping to suppress fires while simultaneously reducing lead pollution that's going into people's homes. So the notion that you could do this together is a good one. Less fire, better water, taming the elements of the earth. Matt, thank you very much for your time. Hey, my pleasure, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And see you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.